You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 23rd, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Over the past several years, we've heard a lot of fairly shallow commentary about what resilient and reliable grid power means in the wake of events, like the public safety power shutoffs that California experienced during the wildfire season and the blackout that Texas experienced this February. And we've tried to delve more deeply into the specific challenges those states have faced in episode 102 with Michael Wera and episode 145 with Russell Gold, Emily Grubert, and Ari Pesco. But stepping back from those details a little bit, what does resilient and reliable grid power mean from the perspective of grid planning? What specifically should the operators of the bulk power system do to make their grids more reliable? Do wholesale power markets need to be reformed to internalize the cost of power shutoffs and send price signals that project developers can respond to? How can new technologies like demand response systems and microgrids play new roles in making grids more resilient? And at an even more fundamental level, who is the grid for anyway? Does the grid exist to serve people, or do people exist to serve the grid? It will probably come as no surprise to our listeners that our old friend Lorenzo Kristoff, a grid architect who previously served at the California Energy Commission and at CAISO, the California grid operator, for over 20 years, has been thinking deeply about these questions. Lorenzo has been a longtime friend of the show and previously joined us in episodes 10 and 94, as well as Elab Extra number 3. As he reviewed what happened in the Texas blackout, a thought struck him. Shouldn't customers who lose power in a blackout be compensated for providing that grid service? It's the kind of thought that seems pretty obvious once you have it, but it was in fact quite novel, and it's just the kind of outside-the-box thinking that makes Lorenzo one of my favorite deep thinkers on energy. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome him back to the show today to explore that idea and share some of his deep thoughts about grid resilience and reliability, and how more active participation by customers and distributed energy resources can help improve both. But before we go to the interview, a quick administrative note. As we announced in the previous episode, we'll be taking a little break from our regular show production in July while I execute some major life changes, including switching to working on this show full-time, moving out of my home in Boulder, and adopting a new nomadic lifestyle as an itinerant podcaster. To fill the gap, Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie has put together about a two-and-a-half-hour best-of episode featuring clips that were previously only available to our members. So stay tuned for that and for our exciting brand refresh in August, in which we will launch the first shows that I've been able to produce as a full-time podcaster. We also have some other cool new stuff and development that we plan to launch after the break, so if you haven't joined our members' subscribers yet, do it today so you don't miss out. 
Then in the news segment of this episode, we'll review a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for big oil. We'll update the Biden administration's leadership on climate risk. We'll see how the California utility regulator is planning to replace the output of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant with clean power. We'll note a speed bump in the falling cost of solar, and we'll salute the prospect of offshore wind off the coast of California. And now, our conversation with Lorenzo Kristoff, recorded May 24th, 2021. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Lorenzo, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. It's really a delight to be here and always good to talk to you. So for the past several years, you've shared with me some of your thoughts about what resilience really means in a grid power context, as well as the role of microgrids and other related topics. So I wanted to have you back on the show to talk about these ideas and see what kinds of guidance we might be able to derive for the evolution of the grid. So to begin with, maybe we should start with what grid reliability really means, because I think there are perhaps a lot of mistaken ideas out there about it. So how do grid operators think about reliability? Well, where I would start is to suggest that how grid operators think about reliability maybe doesn't exactly align with how customers experience reliability. And that's not a criticism of grid operators, it's just a different perspective. The grid operator Mm -hmm. tends to think about maintaining balance on the bulk power system. Supply and demand have to be in balance at all times. But the customer sees reliability from what's actually being delivered to their premises, what's being delivered to the end uses. And that depends on the whole system. So I tend to think about reliability is really a whole system property. It starts with the bulk system, the grid operator is balancing supply and demand dynamically in real time, but then power's got to move over the distribution wires and it's got to get to customers where they're located. So the ISO realm or the balancing authority realm is really a piece of reliability, but it's not the whole story. And one of the things that I was paying attention to last summer, as a lot of others were, the California ISO had these rotating outages for two successive evenings in the early evening time, August 14th and 15th. And -hmm. there has been huge attention paid to those events. And it always kind of troubled me in a way, because when you look at the customer's experience of those events, August 14th, it was about 1,000 megawatts of load. The ISO system is under 50,000. 1,000 megawatts of load for 80 minutes, which is 400,000 customers. August 15th, the next night, it was 20 minutes, and it was only 470 megawatts. Compare that with the public safety power shutoffs, where the utility has actually been shutting down transmission lines and people were losing power. We had October 9th to 12th outages that lasted for a couple of days and affected 800,000 customers. Later that month, October, there were more power shutoffs that affected almost a million customers, and again, lasting a couple of days. So in terms of the customer experience, those rotating outages at the ISO level were a tiny fraction of the impact compared to public safety power shutoffs. And that's just the California phenomenon. But in general, nationally, the outages that customers experience are mostly due to problems on distribution. Very rarely are there outages that come about as a result of a supply shortage that prevents the system operator from balancing the system. Hmm. Whereas the public safety power shutoffs are more on the transmission system. 
They're largely about transmission lines that go through wooded areas and under conditions where it's high wind and very dry, then it becomes a risk that there'll be sparking that sets off a forest fire. So what the utility will do is shut down certain lines, but that means that everybody's downstream of those lines is going to lose power. Right. We discussed that in a previous episode with Michael Wera. So I think your point here is well taken that if reliability is the question, a lot more people lost power due to the public safety power shutoffs, which was not a problem of resource adequacy. There was plenty of generation on the system. It wasn't a congestion problem or anything. It was just that they had to de-energize the lines to prevent the lines from sparking fires. Whereas the actual resource shortages that led to the customer rotating outages in August 2020 were of a far lower magnitude. That's right. Yeah. All right. So in case any of our listeners are not familiar with ISOs and RTOs and the bulk power system, I'll just note they might want to pause here and listen to part three of episode 126, which is part of our Energy Basics series where we covered all that. So I looked up one technical definition of reliable reserve margin requirements, you know, getting back to this question of like how much of this is really due to a shortage of capacity on the grid. And this is becoming relevant all of a sudden again in California, right? As we start to contemplate the shutdown of the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant and the CPUC is now grappling with how to make up for those resources without increasing emissions, right? So how to replace that clean power with other clean power. And there's a lot of people suddenly paying attention again to the resources on the Cal ISO system, wondering if there's really going to be enough of it without Diablo Canyon. So I looked up one technical definition of reliable reserve margin requirements, and here's how I would summarize it. Reserve margin requirements are typically determined by assessing the probability of an outage using one of two interpretations of a 1 in 10 standard. Some interpret it as the minimum reserve margin required to meet a loss of load expectation, sometimes referred to as LOLE, of one event in 10 years, or a loss of load probability, or LOLP, of 0.1 per year roughly the same thing. Alternatively, some interpret it based on a loss of load expectation of one day in 10 years or 2.4 loss of load hours per year. But however you do it, there's an expectation essentially built into the system that at some point there will be outages. Well, that's right. It is built into the system because for one, I think just the idea of building to the point where you have zero probability of outages is an impossibility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's getting that last thousandth of a percent that's going to cost a fortune. So it makes sense that there's a certain level that's acceptable. But keep in mind, I just want to reiterate that these LOLP or LOLE measures refer to specifically the probability of insufficient supply to maintain supply-demand balance at the bulk system level and therefore leading to rotating outages. It doesn't have anything to do with outages on the distribution system or taking lines out of service or all these other things that affect the end-use customer experience. So that's the limited ballpark we're talking about. Now, when that happens, when those events occur, outages of generating plants and there's a shortage of supply capacity for the bulk operator and they go into what 
Kaiso calls a stage three emergency. That means they have to shed load in order to keep the system from collapsing as a whole. They can't let supply and demand go out of balance for very long before it starts to have really horrible impacts across the whole system. So shedding load is an acceptable way of maintaining supply and demand balance. You just get rid of some demand. And there are protocols set up, so this is something the utilities know how to do, the ISO knows how to do it, and it's set up to work relatively smoothly. So it is a legitimate tool. One of the things that occurred to me recently is that it should be looked at as a service that customers provide to the system during those stage three emergency times that historically are not compensated. So if you think about the potential that the entire system could collapse if you don't shed load, then this involuntary shedding of load really benefits the rest of the system, all the customers who are not forced out. And the customers who are forced out bear the cost of that. And I think we talk a lot about markets and services and compensating services. Why don't we compensate this service? And I just started playing with that idea. You know, right now it's free. So there's a cost to maintaining the power system for those other customers who are not forced out. There's a cost that doesn't ever come into the calculation because it's never compensated. And I thought, well, what is the value of that service? So I just started playing with this idea and thinking that if you to look at all of the demand that's served during forced outage periods, small number of customers are out, everybody else gets service. How many megawatt hours are served during those periods when some customers are forced out? If you then apply a value of lost load criterion to say, well, we avoided losing all that load, or maybe a wholesale spot price, then you come up with a dollar value that says, here's what we saved for the rest of the system. In some ways, that could be a value of the service that the customers forced out have provided to the rest of the system. And so I'm suggesting, well, why not compensate those customers based on the value they provide? That's a fascinating and remarkably outside the box concept. (laughs) It's one of those things where it kind of makes you wonder, huh, why haven't we been thinking about things that way? And, you know, as we discussed in episode 145, the February freeze in Texas was a classic example of this kind of forced outage, which the grid operator, ERCOT, had to order some customers off the grid, had to order them to lose power in order to keep the entire grid from collapsing. And forcing load off the grid has been a tool in the system operator's toolbox forever, although it's generally used as a last resort. So is there anything wrong with it? No, I think it just needs to be recognized as a cost and it needs to be recognized as a service. In the Texas case that you just mentioned, one of the reasons, one of the standard justifications for not compensating this service is the notion that all customers will ultimately share equally in the burden of forced outages because Mm. it's a rotating process. You Mm. rotate from one circuit to another, and so ultimately everybody shares the burden. That's the theory, though, and in practice it doesn't happen that way. And in fact, I listened to your episode on Texas, and one of your speakers was saying that 
about 50% of the distribution circuits could not be rotated out in the ERCOT case. Right. And that was because those circuits had identified critical facilities that could not be de-energized. I don't think he said exactly what the facilities are, but things like firehouses and wastewater pumping and who knows. And hospitals, I think. Well, hospitals, I think, are legally required to have backup gas generators. Okay. But at the same time, I don't know if just having a hospital on a circuit, even if it has a generator, still might disqualify it from being rotated out. Right. So what happens is about half the circuits don't participate in the rotating outages. Now you have a serious inequity because there's only only a proportion of the population that's going to bear that burden. And in the case of Texas, I remember reading a report around the middle of March that looked at the demographics of the Texas outages and found that it was disproportionately low-income communities, communities of color, and so on, that bear that burden. So this, to me, is just an example of a bigger issue in our energy systems, is that there are all kinds of externalities that never get compensated that never come into the the cost calculation. And because it's free, it hides some of the real costs of operating the power system, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. All right, so let's shift from focusing on the bulk system now over to the customer perspective. How do you think about reliability and that other similar term resilience, but from a customer perspective? Well, to start, both reliability and resilience should be assessed from the customer perspective. So where I started earlier about reliability, that's looking at the whole system and what it provides. Resilience is also about the quality, consistency, dependability of the service that the customer actually receives at the premises. Now, resilience is thrown around a lot in the industry. I think most people will say that the distinction between reliability and resilience is based on the magnitude of impact and the duration of outages. And reliability is about these things that happen with some frequency, not just the bulk system supply shortages, but distribution outages and so on. And there are standard measures that distribution utilities use to measure reliability, things known as SADI and SAFI about the frequency and duration and so on. But those metrics were really designed in a world where we didn't think about these really major climate-induced events where power is taken out over wide areas for a long period of time due to hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, the Texas freeze, and so on. So we need a new kind of calculus to think about that. But I think the point that seems important to me is that No matter how much we invest in hardening the grid, given the volatility of the climate and the fact that we're going to see more severe and more frequent disruptions, we shouldn't depend 100% on the grid to supply electricity during these major disruptions. We should be making preparations basically everywhere all over the country for communities to have at least microgrid types of arrangements for a certain set of critical services and facilities, including first responders, shelters, or the term resilience hubs is now being used where you can take in people. You know, if the people in Texas that were freezing because they had no heat in their house 
had a place to go where they could get warmth and shelter and food and some basic medical care that could have made a difference between life and death to many of them. And my feeling is that we should be creating these kinds of capabilities everywhere because things will get more volatile and we can't build a system that's going to withstand all those possibilities. Right. And for the benefit of our listeners who are not familiar with them, the acronyms you mentioned earlier, SADI stands for System Average Interruption Duration Index and SAFI, the System Average Interruption Frequency Index. And they're both just commonly used as reliability indicators by the electric power utilities. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I noted that U.S. Representative Jimmy Panetta of California has sponsored a bill called the Making Imperiled Communities Resistant to Outages with Generation that is <laughs> Resilient, Islandable, and Distributed, or the Microgrid Act. Har, har. Yeah. All right. Very clever acronym. <laughs> yeah. They love to do that, don't they? Yeah, that's good. The act would cover incentives for building microgrids, starting with a 30% tax credit through 2025, and then it tapers off to a 10% tax credit in 2028 and ends in 2029. So what do you think of this bill? Well, I just learned about it. And as far as I know, I haven't really seen any bill text to it. But the idea is definitely going in the right direction. Conceptually, I think it's the right thing to do. And it goes back to my point about the dominant tendency in the industry to focus on grid resilience. Let's make the grid stronger rather than end use electric service resilience from the customer perspective. So if you go back to my point that let's not depend 100% on the grid, then we need an investment now nationally in facilities at the local level that can operate when the grid goes down. Now, there's a bill that I've been working on in the California legislature. I've got a collaboration going with an organization called the Climate Center in Santa Rosa. That's an environmental nonprofit. And then there's a whole team of people collaborating with them. We've been advancing Senate Bill 99, the Community Energy Resilience Act of 2021, and that's authored by Senator Bill Dodd. And just today, as a matter of fact, it was heard on the Senate floor, and it passed. So wow. it's gotten through, yeah, it's gotten through the first house of the legislature. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. We were all very, very happy about that. <laughs> what it does is planning for resilience at the community level. So it creates a program that would be administered by the California Energy Commission, which is our statewide energy agency. Mm -hmm. And it would provide grant funding and all kinds of technical and process expertise and other support to local governments all over the state to develop community energy resilience plans. And the idea is that at the local government level, with the assistance of the Energy Commission and the experts that they qualify to do this work, would be able to conduct a community-based participatory process to identify what are the threats we're most concerned about, what are the assets that we have that support resilience locally, what would be the high-priority services where we want to build microgrid capabilities to protect functions and services that will become important when disastrous events happen, and then come out at the end of a plan with a set of shovel-ready projects that are specific enough that they could get funding when infrastructure funding starts coming. So that bill essentially would do something that local governments don't quite have the capability or the experience doing today. So, you know, I think I've talked to you before about the need to 
bring together urban planning where an awful lot of things are happening related to decarbonization and potentially equity and resilience. Yeah. But urban planners don't look at energy typically. Right. And then you have the utilities doing their energy system planning, and they typically don't talk to the urban planners and the local governments. Right. So this is a step towards bringing those together, creating capacity at the local government level to start doing energy planning, specifically with a resilience objective, and then engaging the distribution utilities to be collaborators in this process by providing information about the local grid, grid capacities, their own infrastructure planning processes, and so on. So we start to really build some capacity for bottom-up energy planning. So that's what this bill would do. That's very cool. And you have to think that in the normal sort of bill reconciliation process that SB 99 and the Microgrid Act, otherwise known as HR 2482, are probably going to find some way to be married together, right? Well, the one you just talked about, the Microgrid Act, is a federal law. Oh, sorry. You're right. <laughs> right. SB 99 is a state law. So, you right, know, right, right. we're building something in California which kind of goes to really the focus of what we're seeing here. And a lot of it is the power shutoffs and the wildfire threats and so on. But yeah. the idea of resilience at a local level and a national program to advance that, to me, is the logical next step. And I'd like to see that get built into the infrastructure funding that's going to come down from the federal government. That I know there's energy pieces in there. I think there's a significant allotment of maybe $50 billion that has the label resilience on it. Mm. And I'd like to see that go not just to strengthening the grids, but to actually building these local resilient energy systems in communities all over the country. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to kind of compare contrast this microgrid approach with, you know, a more conventional approach to just grid hardening. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake to think of those as substitutes. And I've seen that echoed in some of the regulatory proceedings where, oh, well, if we do enough hardening on the grid, then we don't need these microgrids. And I just think that's a very short-sighted way of thinking. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. 
We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. May 26th was a watershed moment in Big Oil's campaigns to delay, deny, and ignore climate change. Indeed, for someone who has been following energy transition as long as I have, thinking back on the seemingly unassailable political power that these oil giants had 15 years ago, May 26th was nothing short of astonishing. First was ExxonMobil, which lost two board seats to an activist hedge fund known as Engine No. 1, who pushed the company to address climate change and start participating constructively in the energy transition. Shareholders also approved measures calling for the oil major to produce annual reports on climate and its grassroots lobbying efforts. The hedge fund was able to win over Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Street, three of Exxon's top five shareholders, to support its bid because, as we have documented in many news items on this show, major asset managers are beginning to recognize the risk of climate change and are taking steps to avoid losing their investors' money due to being on the wrong side of the transition. Next was Chevron, the second largest U.S. oil company, whose shareholders voted to cut emissions from using the company's products. What this means in practice is unclear to me, but it probably means not selling as much oil as the company had planned, producing oil more cleanly than they have in the past, and offsetting the company's own emissions. And finally, it was Royal Dutch Shell, which lost a case in a Dutch court that ruled the company must accelerate cuts to its greenhouse gas emissions in the Netherlands by 45% below 2019 levels by the end of 2030. And the following day, an Australian court ruled that the country's environment minister has an obligation to children to consider the harm caused by climate change as a part of her decision-making in approving the expansion of a new coal mine. Incredible. Item 2. But the events of May 26th hardly stand alone. These revolts are all of a piece with other long-standing efforts to acknowledge climate risk and to protect the interests of shareholders and stakeholders. Indeed, just about a week earlier on May 26th. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.